We have just read a very familiar uh, passage of Scripture. For, to us, a child is born and a son is given. Um, but I want you to pay attention. Uh, don't lose sight of what Scripture is saying and therefore what God is saying through the Scriptures to us today. Um, is anyone here um, busy? Hmm. All right, let's have some confession time. Anyone too busy? Anybody? Has anyone got their busyness just right? Anyone? No, it's too much, isn't it? So we find ourselves too busy at this time of year. It's pretty normal. Now, I don't want you to panic. I'm not gonna, this is not going to be another sermon on over-busy people, right? We've had enough of those sermons, amen? amen? Even though we still need some more because we never learn our lesson, right? Amen to that as well. Um, but if we haven't learned the dangers of over-busyness by now, we never will. But there is general agreement in this uh, sanctuary of this church that we're busy people. And Christmas seems to add to it, doesn't it? We're told to have joy and peace at Christmas. Well, I'll have joy and peace when everything settles down, thank you very much. Um, but it seems to never settle down. I saw a, a meme on the internet a few days ago that said, if I can just get through this week, then everything will settle down. And your life is one constant, if I can just get through this week, and then you die. It's over. But that's what it can feel like, right, sometimes in our lives. So sometimes, and, and, and the word that you brought, Carol, so wonderful to hear that. Sometimes we can feel the squeeze on our time and on our heart. We can feel that we're being squeezed on all sides in these matters. And we keep hearing the truth of Christianity, the truth of Scripture, God's Word to us that says, rest in Christ, take His yoke. He is the Prince of Peace. And we're like, give me some of that, please. We might feel <laughs> like a mosquito, I've used this before, we might feel sometimes that we're so busy, we're like a mosquito in a nudist camp. There is so much to do, we don't know where to begin. And the passage that we've read out this, uh, this morning is so gloriously familiar. Isaiah chapter 9 is embedded within a context of Isaiah's ministry 750 years before Christ. I hope you caught the subversive language as Janet was reading to us. Subversive. This is undermining the powers and the rule of Rome, uh, of the Assyrians, sorry, over God's people. What are they going to do with this yoke of oppression, with the boots that oppress God's people? So notice the, sub, uh, the subversive language. Darkness will always be banished by light. The smallest candle sends the darkness fleeing. There will always be a new sheriff in town in light of these words. Light has shined, the burdens are lifted, the rod of the oppressors is broken. Amen to all of that. And, and James, thank you for your, your marvelous intercessions again on praying for the persecuted church. You feel the rod of the oppressors, the boot of those who are persecuting them. We read of 
boots of warriors and blood-soaked garments that will be burned with fire. That's the context for a son given. A child given and a son born. So we must be thinking, if we're talking about the, the, the burdens being lifted, the rod of the oppressors being broken, and garments in blood being burned by fire, then this sheriff that's coming in to sort this all out must be some mighty warrior. He must be pretty tough. So we read through the scriptures of warrior boots and blood and burning garments and fire, and suddenly we find it's not some big tough warrior at all. It's subversive. It's the world being turned upside down. It's a child born, a son given. And as we're reading, before we get to that piece in chapter 9, you very much want the rod of the oppressors, you want the oppressors to be smitten from heaven. Fire and lightning. You want them to be judged and consumed, right? But no, God does it in a subversive way. He offers, essentially, himself to break the rod of the oppressor. And what the Bible is showing in these words is, if you're a careful reader, is more than just the printed words on the page. Some of us love C.S. Lewis. This is the first one, Carl, if you could pop that up. Um, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, in the Voyage of the Star Treader. In our world, said Eustace, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. So now we're talking about the power of deeper meaning, of symbolism. The symbolic meaning of what a star is can be likened to the symbolic meaning of who this child is. Yes, he's a baby, a son. He's a human being, just as a star is a ball of flaming gas. But as this ball of flaming gas symbolizes light in the darkness, and that's what stars do, don't they? It's just a ball of flaming gas millions and millions of miles away but you can see the light that's coming from it. So the symbolic meaning of it is far greater. So Christ, even as a sun, symbolizes light in the darkness. Born to bear a, a weight of glory that no one else could bear. No mere mortal could bear the weight that is carried by this one. Because the language that is used to describe him. Let's see how many of these we tick. Who else could be called wonderful? Well, I've been called wonderful once or twice in my life. You've been called wonderful once or twice in your life. That's the, probably the only one that we've been called out of this list. Maybe counselor. I mean, come on, I didn't see that one come in. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Anyone? <laughs> Everlasting Father. Anyone? Prince of Peace. Cooey. Anyone? No one else but God Himself. This is what the baby is going to be called. 
And merely the physical level of knowledge, you see, a star is flaming gas. But we see, but we humans can see physical things have deeper meaning. That's what the Bible is showing us in passages like this. We see meaning and substance and symbolism and transcendence. We see God and what he's doing. And so human knowledge must never be reduced to the scientific form of knowledge, which is called scientism. If you've not heard that phrase, Google it. It's a false version of knowledge. And in the same way, the Bible predicts Christ, who is God, become man. So much so that by the time we get to John's Gospel, it opens with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word that was always with God, because God has always been a speaking God, God has never been mute. Therefore, the Word of God is co-eternal with God the Father. This Word became flesh. This is the Son given to defeat the rod of the oppressor. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And because Jesus is, as the, as the carol goes, or it's in one of the carols, it's in one of the creeds, God from God, light from light, the source of these things, is this baby born? He and only He can remove the oppressor's rod. Now we're talking symbolic. Listen to this. He and only He will remove the oppressor's rod. Where do we see this later in the gospel stories? He and only He faces the soldier's boot. How does He defeat sin, death, and the devil? By the oppressor's rod, the soldier's boot, and garments wrapped in blood or soaked in blood. It's already alluding to the cross. This is what he will do. I got a friend who once wrote to me that every prophet is sent into a disobedient context. That's the whole point, he said. Every prophet is sent into a disobedient context. So the baby that's been born, the son that's been given, is born into this disobedient context. And it is disobedient, right? Rods and boots and garments soaked in blood. This is the cause of sin. This is the entailments of sin that Christ has come to rescue and redeem us from. These very things. Let me rephrase the context. We are the disobedient context. It's us. A child has been given, a son has been born for you. We are the disobedient context. And guess what? God still comes after us. Christ is still born into that context and defeats that context from within. Isn't that good news, church? We have needed rescuing as a human race since almost day one. <laughs> it's not quite day one, but almost day one. Now, human beings, you see, always try to make themselves gods. It's what tyrants do. We see it today as, as, in, as in the ancient world. We always have that capacity within us to abuse authority. 
to overlord others, to just overreach. And even if you're Christian, don't think for one minute that by being saved that the idols are idle because they're not. The whole of your Christian life is about God defeating those powers called idols in you. Because no one thinks like Christ yet. No one acts like Christ yet. None of us are perfected yet. We still need Christ. Therefore, do not think the idols are idle. One of the many billions of criticisms against Karl Marx, and rightly so, someone once said to him, you are a godless self-god. Woohoo! Now that's a criticism to Karl Marx with his beard. You are a godless self-god. It's a good definition of sin. So what's wrong with the world? We are godless self-gods. Another way to say this is, as G.K. Chesterton said, in slightly different language, the heretic is a, is a person, he says man, but we'll say person, who loves his truth more than the truth itself. Now church, just look at the world around you. Do people love their truth more than the truth itself? Yeah, the answer is yes. My truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. No. There is the ultimate truth of things and it's always found in Christ. Always. We do not get to make up the truth. That's one of the definitions of being a godless self-god. For we are covered in yokes of oppression, boots of suppression, and wrapped in garments of blood. That's what our sin does. And this is all the work of disobedient, godless, idolatrous heretics. If you want to think clearly about what sin is and why Jesus came, we are all idolatrous, disobedient, godless heretics. That's what sin is. And so Christ as prophet and king and priest is born into that sinful context for us. The light is coming and has come into the world, church. I remember hearing about a Sunday school teacher who asked the class, any, any retired Sunday school teachers here? Yeah, a few of you, yeah. Have you asked your children this? Class, suppose we want to pray for forgiveness. What must we do first of all? And a little boy put up his hand and he said, sin. If we want to pray first, we've got to sin first. And it, it is sin that has required God out of his love and his compassion and his mercy to offer himself in the person of his son to be the atoning sacrifice for us to face the oppressor's rod, to face the soldier's boot, to have his own garments soaked in blood for us. It was his holy love that compelled him. So when we pray, and this is what I loved about the, the picture, the, the story that you shared earlier, Carol and James, the, the ministry of intercession that you gave us earlier, that when we pray, 
We confess our sin in this context. What we don't do is just blow sunshine at God in our prayers. We don't just pretend. Because Christ has come to set us free. To set the captive free. Out of his holy, unstoppable, redeeming love. Amen? And so as we come to a close now, this is the God who loves this world so much that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him, in this son given, the whole fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Pleased. God is happy to dwell in the Son that is sent into the context of sin to break the yoke of the oppressor and the rod and the garments in blood to set his people free. God is pleased to dwell in Christ. Chapter 1 verse 19 of Colossians. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself not just some things, but all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Now think of the power of this man who is God. St. Augustine said that like, he likened God to a circle. This is amazing, by the way. I only read this this week. God is a circle, St. Augustine said, 1,500 years ago, whose circumference is nowhere, but whose center is everywhere. That, I still can't understand that, but I know it's profound enough to sound about right for God. Nowhere is to speak of the infinite. Everywhere is to speak of God being present everywhere. It's amazing. In the baby Jesus, we have the God of all creation limiting himself the circumference that is nowhere the center that is everywhere is now located in this baby and saint augustine also said this is going to blow your socks off can you just hold on to them for a moment god is more present to you than you are to yourself right now God is more present to you now than you are to yourself. But how can this be? Isaiah 8 verses 9 to 10 says, Raise the war cry, you nations. Church, raise the war cry and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. And that's in the chapter just before Isaiah chapter 9. How do we know that this will happen? How do we know that God is with us? How do we know that a son is born and a child is given? How do we know this? Look at the very last few words of the passage that Janet read out. Chapter 9 verse 7 of Isaiah. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will do this. 
That just means that he is zealous for you. He's zealous for you to know him in saving grace. He's zealous for you. Are you zealous for him? Hungry, thirsty, zealous. And he overcomes all of this by taking the oppressor's rod, by feeling the force of the soldier's boot, and by having his garments of blood ripped off his back like his skin at the cross of Calvary. This is how he does it. God's zeal for us does that. So anyway, happy Christmas, everybody. All glory to the Son that was given. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.